Hi, everybody. Welcome to the February 19th, 2016 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Gazzini. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on how Pope Francis's comments about Donald Trump's desire to build a wall on the Mexican border and Trump's response is affecting the presidential circus. Patty Cahoon from Westward, the only thing we were missing in this whole campaign was a pontiff and just like a gift from uh, the heavens, here we are. I know, and that's what I was going to say. You know, when we had talked about who was going to be the new pope the last time on the show, I said, oh, you know, who cares? Now, could we have a more, and we couldn't have a more entertaining presidential candidate, and now we could not have a more entertaining pope. There's some discrepancy on what he actually said, uh, but I would say he should have been a little more Christian in how he said it. <laughs> David, David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, Trump has not been afraid to offend anyone, uh, so I can't imagine he's afraid to go after the Pope here. Do you think there's going to be some after effects from his comments? The after effect, we, we see the effects now. Uh, we actually had like several minutes on television when Donald Trump wasn't the main story, and Pope Francis stepped in and ruined that. You know, <laughs> you know holy hypocrisy, Pope Francis. You are the head of state. You've got a U.N. delegation in your state. It's surrounded by a giant wall. It's a huge wall. It's bigger than the wall Trump would build. And you build it. You have it, as popes in their city-state have for centuries, to keep out people you don't want to come in. The Vatican City has the most restrictive immigration policy in the world, way more restrictive than the United States, even more restrictive than Mexico, which is extremely tough. Uh, if he wants to set a good example, instead of wagging his finger at Americans, how about you take in some of those Syrian refugees or Mexican job seekers? You know, the Vatican City's small, but they could build a giant apartment tower in it, 35 stories tall if they wanted to, house some of the world's displaced. Why don't you take the moat out of your own eye, uh, take the beam out of your eye before you go around picking on our moats? I, I, you know, as, as a visitor to St. Peter's Square just a few months ago, I think there's a little easier to visit, maybe not immigrate to the Vatican, but a little bit easier to visit than it would be to uh, come across Nobody's a, a Trump Mexican wall. Nobody's stopping Mexican tourists from coming into this country. <laughs> Let's keep it rolling. Uh, Penfield Tate, attorney with QTAC Rock, longtime state lawmaker. Um, we have a, uh, a pretty big support, both with Catholics and non-Catholics, for uh, Pope Francis. Is that going to affect any Trump supporters, or is that a non-factor? Um, I don't know if it will affect any Trump supporters. It won't matter in South Carolina, because South Carolina is, what, 3% Catholic and 97% something else? Mm -hmm. uh, so they probably are pleased with the fact that, 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 that Trump took on the pope. It's kind of interesting, just the parallels, because this pope up to this point has been known for being outspoken, non-conventional, and addressing and confronting issues in the church kind of head-on and challenging the church and, and those in, in the, 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 the believers of the faith in terms of uh, challenging some of their thoughts and opinions um, and traditions. And so I, I don't think in many ways, as Patty pointed out, it's not a surprise that, that he called this out. He's been calling out a lot of people on a lot of different things. But in his typical fashion, Donald Trump um, overreacted um, bombastically, intentionally, because he's getting the desired effect. That's all everybody's talking about is now Donald's going after the Pope. Um, I think this, I think it's just another brick in the, in the wall of logic building against Donald Trump that people question his temperament and really his capacity and capability to be the commander-in-chief of this country. He, he's making the best argument against his own candidacy. That'll build over time.
Ed Sealer from the Denver Business Journal, wrap it up for us. First, Donald Trump makes the argument that the government should lead the efforts to discriminate against a particular uh, religion in Muslims, and Paul Ryan rightly calls him out for not understanding the term conservative. Now, at a time when other presidential candidates are discussing the idea of a twofold strategy, one being let's secure our borders, but let's also help the people that want to come into this country, Donald Trump rightly gets called out by the Pope for not being Christian because all he's saying is hate, hate, hate not, hey, how do we balance this out? And he acts like something is surprising here. I'll tell you what term he does understand, though, narcissism. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> the death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia last week has triggered a political fight between President Obama and the U.S. Senate, which may have ramifications here in Colorado. Michael Bennett's re-election bid already had a considerable amount of attention, but now with the slim GOP Senate majority in play, the stakes have been raised even further. Patty, here we have um, a, a huge national story, but a Senate race right here in Colorado that this is bound to be a big part of. What do you think? Well, I think until the Pope jumps into this presidential race, the only other thing we were missing was a dead Supreme Court justice <laughs> and the suggestion that someone had killed him with a pillow, maybe the Pope, if you've heard that whole theory, that, you know, that he was found with a pillow over his head and it was murder and Obama murdered him. Anyway, it's... This is a crazy, crazy part of this campaign now. Obama is still the president. He is still the president for almost another year. For him to nominate a chief ju a justice makes sense. The, the Senate does have the choice of confirming or not confirming his nominee. So that whole argument just strikes me as yet another bunch of whining in this presidential campaign. And I can't imagine that Colorado's Senate race w could get any hotter. So it's an issue, of course, people are going to really be fighting over this seat, but whether they're going to be fighting over this seat, whether or not Obama has already tried to push through a new Supreme Court justice. Gardner is anti-Obama naming anyone, and kudos to Bill Cadman in the states in the state house because he actually said, "Hey, no problem. If Obama is going to nominate someone, the, the Senate has the choice of confirming or not confirming." David, I guess that's where my question starts. What's the better play for the Senate? To be open to a nominee and have an up or down vote and say yes or no, and then likely they'll say no, and let that kind of be the course of action, or to stall the situation? Well, it's, it's, to, ex it's to follow the Constitution. As, as Patty said, the president has the absolute uncontrollable right to nominate. It says he shall nominate, and so the, that, that's his prerogative. He can nominate anyone he wants. If he nominates people like he has in the past, the previous two justices, or sort of anybody one could conceivably imagine him nominating, uh, the Senate has its own authority to either have a vote or not. As Harry Reid accurately stated when he was leading an attempted filibuster of Samuel Alito's nomination, the Senate has no obligation to give any presidential nominee a vote ever. That's their absolute choice. In a way, it's more candid uh, for the Republicans to say no means no. We are not, you know, consent. If you look at the administration's guidance on Title IX, uh, what is consent? Uh, you can't, there is no consent here. An Obama nominee would be like Soto, Sonia Sotomayor, who testified before Congress and said, I consider Heller settled precedent. I testified against her nomination in the Senate Judiciary Committee, said her record is terrible on this issue, and 
within months of when she was on the Supreme Court, she voted to overrule Heller. Another Obama nominee nomination is virtually certain to get, create five votes to nullify the Second Amendment. Lots of other constitutional rights, uh, like the Re Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which protects First Amendment for exercise of religion, would be in jeopardy. Article One, which says the president, not the, the that says Congress, not the president, has the exclusive lawmaking power. I think an election is a very good time to have a national referendum. On do we want a Supreme Court that is going to enforce the text of the Constitution, or one that will supinely bow before uh, the will of whoever wants more and more unchecked power? Penn, if you're President Obama, which way do you play this? Do you go with a nominee that you know would have no chance, even if you had three or four years left in your term, um, or a nominee that's fairly moderate and pushing the hand of the Senate, saying you're not even going to consider someone who is considered by uh, a large group of people as a moderate judge? Which way do you play it? Well, it, uh, there are a few ways, as you pointed out. Let me back up for a second and, and lay a predicate. First of all, I, I, I think I take issue with how we frame the question. Um, Justice Scalia's death didn't trigger the fight. What triggered this fight was Senate Republicans announcing the president better not nominate anyone just because it happens to be an election year, and there's countless precedent for prior presidents who have nominated Supreme Court justices in the last year of their presidential term. So that's, there's no question about that. Second point that David pointed to is really important. The Constitution says the president shall nominate justices. So it's not a right of the president. It's a mandate and a prerogative. This is your duty. You have to nominate justices for Senate consideration. So whether the president does it or not is not the issue. He has to, consistent with his constitutional responsibility, and he will. In terms of what happens at that point, that's really a problem for the Senate. This president has placed two, three justices on the, nominated, I think, two justices to mm -hmm. the court now. Um, both have been confirmed. There's been some rancor. It's taken a while, but both have been confirmed. I would also say on the other side, I think Clarence Thomas's nomination took the longest period of time, and that took 100 days, and we have more than 100 days left in the year to get this done. So time is not the issue. Senate Republicans, I think, have to be more careful about this dynamic than the president does. The president can nominate anyone he thinks is qualified. He can play it safe and nominate any number of federal judges he has appointed to the lower courts who have been confirmed by the Senate by votes of 97 to nothing and, and other overwhelming majorities, or he can pick someone who's not on the bench. The problem Senate Republicans have is trying to come up with a rationale that works with the public in an election year to explain why they're rejecting a candidate, which is why they're taking all these preemptive strikes, because they know they won't have good reasons for anyone the president nominates. So they're trying to lay the groundwork and start some conversation now. And I think they may have shot themselves in the foot literally and figuratively, Second Amendment notwithstanding. Uh, Ed, let's bring it back to Colorado. What, how do you think this is going to affect the Senate race between Michael Bennett and a 
to be the determined later Republican nominee, one of, I guess, 13 now at this point. How do you think it's going to affect it? Well, I don't think we know right now because simply because of what you mentioned there. There are 13 Republicans, I mean, five or six who are viewed as legitimate uh, potential uh, candidates in there. And while, you know, the primary could be decided by one vote at this point, um, I, I don't know that this issue is going to surface as the one that's going to break apart the Republican primary and then is going to affect the differences with Michael Bennett. I mean, you really have to look at who could potentially come out of this. I mean, if this is going to be uh, someone that's extremely conservative, like Tim Neville versus Michael Bennett, I don't know that this really factors into it this much, because this is not like something that would push Neville to being more conservative. Um, so uh, um, if you look at someone like a John Kaiser, who is really trying to make this race about an international, about ben Bennett's failure uh, to be a strong foreign relations senator, I don't know that it plays a ton into that either, because this is a domestic race. Then you can get to someone like maybe a Ryan Frazier uh, who, who could put this into their basket of issues that they can run against Michael Bennett on. All in all, I don't think there are a lot of Coloradans who are trying to decide who to elect in 2016 based on whether or not Cory Gardner is saying we should vote or not on the Senate candidate. Um, I think it will blend into the greater picture of differences between President Obama and the Republican Party. And I think that's going to be what this Senate race is about. Not Michael Bennett versus whoever is put up, but the general attitude of Obama versus the Republicans. And we'll have to see how many issues supplant this in importance between now and November. The Denver Police Department announced this week that it found no violations with how officers handled a shooting of a suspected car thief in 2014, despite disagreement from the Denver Independent Monitor. The case was reviewed by D.A. Mitch Morrissey, who found that the officers were legally justified. Meanwhile, Morrissey gave a key endorsement to Denver Senior Deputy D.A. Kenneth Boyd in his run for Denver District Attorney. David, how important is the disagreement between what the police officer, uh, police department, and Mitch Morrissey found, and the Denver's and Denver's independent monitor? Less than you might think, because everyone's in agreement that the officers acted justifiably, appropriately, and in compliance with the then policy of the Denver Police Department use of force in firing the shots against a, a by the way, a guy who had a arrest warrant for auto theft and was driving a stolen car at the time and tried to run over a police officer while escaping. The shootings were plainly justified. The question is, what about starting that confrontation at the time there at a funeral home when there was a funeral going on and there was a risk, which didn't come true, but there was a potential risk to innocent bystanders. That's the dispute. You know, the one argument as well we didn't know is we didn't know it was a funeral home, and you know, well, they didn't have a big sign up and said said funeral home, uh, and there were a lot of a lot of cars parked there. So that that that's the issue, but not the justifiable viability of, of the shooting itself. On the DA's race, uh, Mitch Morrissey's endorsement is important to those people who want continuity, who think he's been doing a good job. There's another candidate from that office, Helen Morgan, who's also running. So, but he gave the endorsement to the one that he wants. Now, if you for the people who want, say they want to change from the office, there's also two candidates. Beth McCann, the state representative, who starts with a big former DA, big lead in, in name recognition and, and getting out there. Um, and, but on the other hand, the two people who've hired her in the past, uh, Ken Salazar um, and uh, Wellington Webb, uh, are endorsing another candidate, Michael Kerrigan, who's a former DA, uh, currently a corporate lawyer at Holland and Hart. And in that regard, 
is, has a lot of like office management experience, which is an important thing of what the DA has to do. Penn, so looking at the situation, the reason we can combine both these issues, you have not only another Denver Police Department issue coming up, the Maids had, makes headlines today, but you have a, a, a district attorney candidate who is endorsed by a district attorney who has a perfect record of not filing any charges against police officers, who worked for a predecessor in Bill Ritter who had a perfect record of not filing, police, uh, filing charges against police officers, and this particular candidate, Kenneth Boyd, is related to the predecessor. If you do like continuity, it sounds like you have a real good shot here, but I gotta believe with a lot of the headlines coming out, someone's gonna smell something fishy. What do you think? Well, in terms of smelling something fishy, I think you could probably have gone back three or four or five other DAs and would have been hard pressed to find a DA who ever filed charges against a police officer in terms of a shooting. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I can't remember the last time I saw a DA issue an opinion that said a shooting wasn't justified. Um, and I can't remember the last time the Denver Police Department investigated one of their own and said, gee, this was an unjustified shooting. So none of that is a shock. Um, I, I think there is, when you look at not just the Black Lives Matter movement, but some of the other things going on in the community, where now these groups have challenged the mayor, they disrupted his speech at the MLK, MLK Marade, they protested at a city council meeting in a rather, you know, appropriate fashion, civil disobedience. This DA race is going to, I think, generate more attention than perhaps it has in the past. And I'm not certain that the endorsement of the current DA does you any favors at this point because I think a growing number of people in this community are becoming disenchanted with the entire system, whatever that means. Uh, and, and I'm not convinced that any of these candidates is perceived as someone separate from or outside of the system. None of them have really made any, that I've heard, any groundbreaking statements about how the DA's decision here was wrong or the police department's decision here was wrong. Uh, and, and, you know, I think the mayor has, to his credit on occasion, said we're trying to fix this. We've got problems. Some of these things aren't right, but I can only do so much. If we fire somebody and career service rehires them, what am I supposed to do? Um, so uh, there, there's a, this is building. Um, right now, everybody's focused on the national issues, the U.S. Senate race, but at some point, this DA race is going to come to prominence. And one thing that'll be interesting, uh, to go back to David's point, Michael Kerrigan got a lot of endorsements early on because he started campaigning two years ago. So he signed a lot of people up. I don't know how those endorsements are going to hold up um, or how this is going to shake out as more candidates enter the field and more issues like this develop. Ed, do you think one of those candidates, while no one has really come out uh, out on a real political limb yet, could they make some hay, potentially, going out on a limb now, seeing the political climate around this issue in Denver? Well, absolutely they can. I mean, this is a year when uh, being the narcissist or being the socialist is not as bad as being the establishment candidate. So I think <laughs> somebody who jumps out and makes waves could, could uh, do a great thing. But as David Penn had really uh, succinctly said, I mean, it's going to be hard. I mean, you've got two of them who work for the current DA, one of them who's now carrying the I want to be the next Mitch Morrissey label on him. You've got a third in Mc Beth McCann who is clearly the establishment politically. I mean, she's worked for several DAs. She's been in the legislature legislature for eight years, um, and Michael Kurgan, who's, who's not really that far off of, uh, of being the establishment either. So I don't know what the, 
the play is here? I mean, I think if somebody was going to jump up and say the DA's office is very poor at what they're doing, they would have done it already. They're not doing it. I mean, I think what you actually need in this race, if you're going to have somebody completely shake it up, is a fifth candidate who comes in from the outside. And I'm not over-believing that could actually still happen. The more headlines that we see placed on Morrissey and his decisions on whether to prosecute or not. And, I mean, heck, you know, as the Republican Senate race has proven, the more the better. Patty, even though this is out of Mayor Hancock's hands legally, the, the DA is going to decide that, does he end up or will he end up paying a political price for what's going on, at least the perception of what's going on with the DA's office? Well, I'm not sure if he'll pay the political price, but some of the candidates for DA will. I think um, Ed's absolutely right. Someone else is going to jump into this race, and they should jump in not as a Democrat, because the race otherwise is going to be pretty much over at the primary. When we've got four Democrats, come June, at the end of June, we'll know who the next DA is unless someone else jumps in and runs against them. They'd have to do it not as a Democrat. And I think given the amount of interest in the political, in the presidential race this year, the socialist, the narcissist, and everybody else who's running, I think come November people would be really interested in looking for a non-establishment candidate, and that would have to be a new candidate in this race. This is a great C.S. Lewis book, you know, the narcissist, the, the, the socialist, and the wardrobe. I don't know. Anyway, let's get a quick take on this one. Out of the three states impacted by the Gold King mine spill, Colorado remains the only one that has yet to announce plans to sue the federal government. New Mexico and Utah are pursuing legal action against the EPA, which has admitted to having experts who warned about the impending disaster. Uh, Penn, your quick take on this. Should Colorado get involved in a lawsuit? Well, I, you know, on this one, I give um, the A.G. Kaufman credit for taking her time studying the issue and deliberating. Making a fast decision to sue doesn't necessarily mean you're right. Um, and she's looking at a number of different issues, and, and I, I respect her judgment in that regard. It's clear that I think Colorado probably suffered the greatest impact from the spill since it started here and the actions um, originated here. But uh, but I think the AG is doing the right thing, studying it, weighing options, considering it. My guess is that ultimately she'll decide to bring the suit. Um, but um, I, I don't have a problem with her waiting and being thoughtful about this. Ed, you're a man on Capitol Hill. How do lawmakers feel? Uh, lawmakers, you know, seem to want to not really play a part in this. I mean, and, and I'll I tell you why is there's a general feeling that while she may be waiting and she may be either taking her time or looking like she's taking her time, Cynthia Kaufman is going to sue. She's jumped a lot quicker to sue the federal government on things that are a lot more divisive in Colorado. This is one where I think everybody would be feeling pretty good about it. Uh, I would be absolutely shocked, and I think most of the people in the Capitol will be absolutely shocked if she doesn't announce that she's suing soon, too. Patty's just Kaufman buying her time? I think so. I think she will wind up suing, too. But in the meantime, you've got all the most affected areas in Colorado trying to decide, do they go into the Superfund program, do they not? So there are a lot of negotiations going on at the federal level. And this, if this lawsuit comes in, it could screw that up, too. And uh, let's watch Sally Jewell subpoenaed next week to talk about this in front of Congress. David, wrap it up for us. Cynthia Kaufman's a very conservative person. I don't mean that ideologically. She's cautious. And I think she's waiting to see... There's a difference between saying the EPA behaved very badly and it would be crazy to have this bad actor come in to be the one that's going to rescue you by turning this into another Superfund monster project. Uh, but do you have a good legal claim in court? I think she's waiting to see how that develops. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. Patty, as always, start us off. 
Well, you should always wonder when people want to buy naming rights, especially of football stadiums. We, Invesco, we all remember that. Now we have Sports Authority Field, uh, Sports Authority, which is going into bankruptcy. They say they're going to be able to keep the naming rights. We'll see. But in the meantime, let's keep an eye on what happens at the Gart Sports Castle, which fortunately is still owned by Gart's property, not Sports Authority. So that great landmark on Broadway, we hope will remain. I didn't know that detail. That's very nice to know. David. The so-called Southern Poverty Law Center, which is really the, the Dudley Brown of, of left-wing uh, direct mail fundraising. The Denver Post published as if it were something real, the, the center's latest report on hate groups in Colorado. And when you drill down, a lot of it is they're calling a hate group people who just disagree with them on issues like immigration or gay rights. Penn. Well, I, I have a thought. If, if we want to make it westward field at Mile High, I'll, I'll donate Penn. So. <laughs> uh, but mine is the attorney who decided to sue the University of Tennessee and gratuitously included in his complaint Peyton Manning in an incident that goes back to 1995, I believe. Um, it's just poor form to take a, a swipe at somebody who, by all accounts, has been a statesman and a gentleman and hopefully is on his way out on a very high note. Ed. I think we probably agree that the uh, coverage of Windmageddon was a little overblown. <laughs> but the fact is, if you have to shut down a stretch of the state's busiest highway because a giant corporate sign is teetering in the wind, maybe we should think about not allowing permits for signs to go that high or at least forcing this one, uh, that being IKEA sign, to come down so we don't have to worry about detouring thousands and thousands of cars off the highway again in the future. It's over three times the other, the, the older sign limit in that entire area. Three times as high as it. Uh, don't get me started on IKEA sign. Uh, uh, say something nice about somebody, Patty. Um, Westward gives grants every year to artists, and researching which artists would win this year just reminds you what an incredible art scene Denver has. In tough times for them, just because rents are going up so high, but wonderful people doing really exciting things. David. American Furniture Warehouse, which unlike IKEA, is a Colorado-based business and not a welfare queen. They, they do everything themselves instead of paying, expecting the taxpayers uh, to make their living for them. And American Furniture Warehouse signs have never blown down onto any highway. <laughs> a great claim to fame nowadays. Penn. Um, Colorado Democratic Party for their J Jefferson Jackson dinner um, invited both Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders um, to speak, and both showed and both spoke, and they basically gave them the entire program. Um, pretty bold move for an organization that normally hasn't gotten that kind of attention from presidential candidates in the past. And we'll talk about that on our CIO post game. That's our web exclusive section in just a few minutes. Uh, Denver chefs uh, Jen Jasinski, Frank Bonanno, Stephen Redzikowski, Alex Seidel, and Dana Rodriguez all nominated this week for a James Beard Award, the Oscars of the food industry. Nice. That's all the time we have tonight. Be sure to tune in to Mississippi Remixed on Sunday night. It's a great, great program. And the finale of our latest season of Street Level on Tuesday at 7 p.m. where we visit the Pearl Street Mall in Denver, in Boulder, excuse me. As always, remember to check out the CIO podcast on iTunes and our web-exclusive segments on Twitter. For everyone here at Channel 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thanks for watching. Good night.